Hey, everybody, it's John. And thanks to everybody who helps us out every week by going to patreon.com slash steal this beer and throwing a couple of bucks away so that we can mail beers to our guests and have some fun conversations resulting from that. So uh, if you're not already, go check it out. It's patreon.com slash steal this beer. Uh, as Cass says, a little bit goes a long way and we appreciate the support. Now, here come the sirens. Steal This Beer, a candid weekly discussion about beer, over beer, by a couple of guys that think about beer way too much. All right, hey y'all, it's five o'clock on Monday, we're stealing beer, I'm Augie Carton. Hey, what's up? I'm John Hall. Hey, John Hall. Um, so you know what I'm sipping on while we talk, John Hall? A tea. Oh, yeah. Because because we're scrambling in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon because this was the time we could grab with uh, legendary brewer Tommy Arthur, who, mm-hmm. uh, who, who agreed to come on. So I will grab a beer to join with you guys. But first, hey, Tommy, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, you know, I would say it's a pleasure to be here, but it's never a pleasure. So get that out and open. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, that's because Hall's such a dick, but he promised wow. me he was going to behave this time. Tommy, no, I, I, I told you, everybody comes on and says, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and yeah. you know, I just I can't is. do that. I just can't do that. Just well, you've too. been on this show too much to know. Like, there's yeah. nobody's going to believe you. So yeah. You got to be sincere. So two weeks ago, I think it was the 2nd of November, you threw on your Facebook page a kind of well thought out couple paragraph post from you with an article saying you were pulling back the reins on your brewery. Um, one, I want to compliment you because I really think the press release was nicely put together, well thought through and explained everything really well. And then on top of that, I thought your post was very personal, and lovely, but I had a couple questions for you like, okay, what's the carve out on this part of the overbrewery for lost Abbey versus the other components? What does this mean for you and all that? And since, since I have those questions and I, I know you and follow you and I'm allowed to text you to ask you these questions, I thought we'd get you on the show so you could even flesh out a little more of what's going on. So why don't I love, I love that you think that you can text Tommy every time you do. do. Every time you do, Tommy says, how did he get my new number? That's not true. (laughs) Tommy, Tommy has helped me through many weird things, including how the fuck do I get this hop? But so I said, I said, but why don't you just take it for a minute? Assuming people haven't read both your post and the press release and give everybody a lowdown on what's going on. And then I'll pick through the questions I and have. I, in case I will quickly helps. say that it wasn't a press release, but instead a very well-written article by Brandon Hernandez, who nobody covers San Diego better than Brandon Hernandez. And so uh, if anybody was going to get the scoop, it was going to be him. But it's not sorry, a press well, release. Me, it was a great let article. Me start with, let me start with, I, I'm sorry for that mistake, because it is a very good article. So it yes. should be credited appropriately. Anyway, Tommy, what, what are you doing? Explain it to us all. What's the plan here for Lost Abbey? What led us to an article about getting smaller? Um, you know, the industry is in a really weird place right now, and it takes, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Um, you know, we've known for a while that we needed to figure out how to become 
a much smaller brewery. And in the article, it states, you know, everybody thinks that we're this really large brewery um, when in fact we're a really small brewery with a, with a large reputation. So getting the messaging um, correct and letting it live and die in that article was very important to us because the details are there. So I uh, worked with Brandon to basically talk about what our needs are. Our needs are to get much, much smaller on a uh, footprint here in San Diego. So our our goal is to take the brewery from 40,000 square feet under roof line, um, which we've had for about the last 10 years, down to about 20,000 square feet. And then within that same uh, you know timeline, work to maintain the level of production that we've done um, in the last year or so, which is about 8,000 barrels of beer um, down from uh, our our, our heyday at about 15,000. And we think that we can be an 8,000 barrel a year brewery and be very successful. Um, but we've got to work on new world costs relative to occupancy, labor, and uh, cost of goods. So uh, everybody's chasing their tail in, in those same spaces, uh, but it's not not easy to get smaller. So, and and it's also counterintuitive to get smaller, right? Like, like what's funny is, and and I do want to touch on because Lost Abbey is part of a family of breweries, right? Because Port is somehow you guys, and and we've actually last the first time we had you on, you were just introducing that, um, you know, the pine tree hop cone, the hop, right. the hop concept, yeah, the, the hop concept. concept. Yep, THC. Yep. So, so I think that's why I and and for people like me who know you, I think that's why we think you're so huge because we feel like they're all just. You know, even though it's a family, we see them as this is Tommy's hop project, this is Tommy's brewery project, this is Tommy's Belgian project. And we, you know what I mean? So I don't know that. So, but you're a personality about, who looms large as well. And, well, and I got fat during COVID. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'm just big in general. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but let's talk about carving Lost Abbey out of the family and what its 8,000 barrels are, because you do make an IPA under the Lost Abbey brand, right? Uh, our seasonal release currently is Mary Taj. So Mary, the Mary Taj Mahal. Um, it's the first time okay. we've ever canned it, but we do not have a Lost Abbey uh, IPA that is a year round beer. Okay. So that's important to know, but mm-hmm. so to just to describe the rest of the family, cause I don't want to say it wrong. Have John correct me and slow down your speed. So what is the whole family of the breweries? So the, I associate the portfolio with is, is a five, five headed monster. Um, currently, the three brands that lead out are Port Brewing, um, Hop Concept, and then the Lost Abbey. Um, and then we have these two little subsets under Tiny Bubbles, our live kind of sour goza program, and the Charisma Tea program, which are basically at this point very hospitality forward. They, you know, they, they're, they're things you find in our tasting room. So we are more or less a three three brand family. Uh, Port Brewing accounts for about forty percent of the sales. Hop Concepts about another 30, and then, you know, the Abbey brand's about 20. Um, so in terms of scale, if we're an 8,000 barrel a year brewery, you know, Lost Abbey is only 1,500-ish barrels of beer. So that's where we come back to being a very small brewery, um, but with a lot of, you know, notoriety. So so that makes sense to me for a bunch of reasons, but mostly just for the name, right? Like, like seriously, not to, not to, confused things are obfuscated but what would what would be the production of like the world's most successful abbey brewery be in, in, uh, you'd be you talking I mean? you'd be talking one of the trappists so shimei or west mala uh, 
somewhere north of 200, 300,000 barrels, probably. Okay. So that's, that's much bigger than I thought. That, scale, right? that corrects it. That corrects it. But only two SKUs globally, right? Is there, is there a lot of different kinds of Chimay? Uh, there's three historically, red, white, and blue. And then they've got right. some, some riffs and some sub-variants these days. So. Gotcha. All right. So that, yeah, that, that, that does com- conflict with what I thought of. Because when I think of Abbey beers, you know, I think of small, little, considered, and kind of more time intensive you know what i mean like you're mm-hmm. not you're not you're not flipping an abbey beer every two weeks like you are an ipa right no, no, so definitely not so that's i was like well that totally makes sense so as as this carves out i, I sorry i was confused by thinking there was an ipa but that makes sense um so the next question i want to have is there there's a part of the news article that i found interesting i didn't know which is what would be called the Lost Abbey's Brewery was a 25 barrel brew house picked up at some point down the line from the beginning of the Lost Abbey. And no, so, huge, so the right? original, yeah, the original brew house we have is a 30 barrel brew house that we bought in 2006 from Stone, and mm-hmm. it's their original brew house. So it's been in place since 1990, 1995. Okay. Um, and the, the challenge that we have faced, and this is part of you know, in the article, I, I really referenced a, a function of growing down, which is a weird, almost oxymoronic term. You don't grow down, you grow up. Um, but at the same time, I wanted people to understand that growing down was sort of a, a, a plan. Um, and by putting a, you know, putting a term against it that wasn't, you know, right sizing or something like that, we wanted to kind of, you know, explain that, that, that the plan we were operating under was ours and ours alone um, for now. But ultimately, we had a 30 barrel brew house that we acquired in, in 2005, 2006 from Stone. And when we bought it, it had some 30 barrel tanks and some 90 barrel tanks. And then as we grew, every single tank that we put into this building um, was at least a 90, 120, 150, 180. Um, so everything in this building was was built to stretch our production into big batch things. And therefore we don't have a lot of one-to-one or one-to-two kind of operational footprints. And, and so, um, when we want to be small and nimble, it's really difficult. Yeah. So actually, and, and I get that. And I think, you know, for the type of brewing, I think you excel at small and nimble matters a lot more than, you know, not, not obviously we need more brewers with the technical wherewithal to give us 150 barrel batches of dependable beer. But that being said, I think, you the artist is much happier when you got 30 of this cooking and 30 of that cooking and 30 of that you know what i mean much the, the school i like to follow but you said something that really impressed me it's funny um you and i were talking about this prior to all this but it's the point that drove it most on me when i've been doing my growth over the last dozen years so we have a 15 barrel brew house um and everything's in multiples of of 30 and up right so 30 45 60 90 um and the argument was always, well, you can fill the top with gas and brew half a tank. Um, so why would you ever limit yourself? You know, if you, if you do 15 and a 30 and it works and you do 30 next time, you're ready. Mm-hmm. And then what you've pointed out to me is in this current inflationary point, like to just clean out a giant tank, like for me a 90 is my biggest, but for you, I think you said 150 is your biggest. 180, 200, yeah. All right, so a 200-barrel tank just to clear its headspace, just to CIP it. What, what's, have you looked at the cost? I imagine you have. If you haven't, you can tell me why you haven't. But like, 
what's just the cost of chemicals to clean a 210 barrel tank versus a 30 barrel tank, even if you're just going to make 30 into the 210? Yeah, so that is something we've we've kind of internally sort of talked about, which is what we call our soft costs. It doesn't show up really in the in the P&Ls and things because it's just chemical cost or CO2 cost. But, you know, six weeks, eight weeks ago, I got a letter from our CO2 supplier saying, you know, our CO2 was going up 20%. Well, in order to purge a 200 barrel tank and put 45 barrels in the bright tank, you know, to stay on schedule, that's the, the yeah, there's huge costs associated yeah. with that, but they're not that discernible, right? But um, so yeah, you can pencil it out, but that takes a lot of people that are smarter than I am yeah. to do so. But what we know to be true is, is that every time you half fill a tank, there are other costs associated with it, even in so much as I have extra chiller capacity on the roof that I have to run so that when I want to chill a 200 barrel tank to, you know, you know, if I ever do stuff with the bright tank, I have to have the chiller horsepower to do so. I have to have the glycol reservoirs. I have to have the piping, the plumbing, yeah. all the stuff that, that is support on a supporting mechanism. And that's where you just can't, you can't really see the costs um, you know, on a day in day out basis, other than, you know, that everything that's a supporting mechanism is probably bigger. The pump to take to clean a 200 barrel tank is five horsepower. You know, you might buy a two horsepower pump but when it takes a shit, it's five grand, not three grand. Like it's just right. everywhere along the way. It's a, it's a death by a thousand bloody, bloody instruments. So that was, th so, so, I, you know, so I guess as a fan of you and lost Abbey, it's fine to say, well, you know, Obviously, there's there's room for, you know, we just got to clean out, call the call the weight we're carrying through the last five years and everybody will streamline to an appropriate number and there'll be all this. But thinking, you know, I think it's worth a little extra effort to get 12 cool bottles a year rather than one bottle every week of a giant production thing. That's the part where I was like, oh, geez, because. All right. So so for thieves at home listening, I'm going to try to make everything we just said that was, I think, well laid out. I mean, I'm not saying you didn't put jargon into something else. You remember the meme that started at the beginning of COVID when all of local restaurants were trying to explain that fry oil costs $2 and there's no line on their business model for fry oil because it's only $2 and now all of a sudden it's $96. So all their chicken wings are $3 each instead of a quarter each. That's kind of what we're talking about. And as everybody knows, I complain on the show all the time. There's nothing that hasn't gone up at least 20%. Pactex, stickers, aluminum cans, CO2, water, like everything's up. But it's Swedish fish. Yeah. Uh, wrong brewery, but I get it. Um, but you know what I mean? So that that's the part, Tommy, that really drove home for me. Like, ooh, maybe I need to shrink. Like, you know what I mean? Like every time I'm half filling a 90, how much money am I wasting? And why did I need you to tell me that? So anyway, so thank you for that. That's part of what it all is. But also, let's talk about the kind of rush to get big. You know, I say on the show all the time, there's, if you're one of these small breweries that started in the last, you know, 10 years in Jersey since the small model became viable, like 10 years ago, you weren't allowed to sell pints of beer in your brewery. And when everybody's like, Augie, can this ever make it? I'm like, look, if these guys have a three and a half barrel system, can kick out, you know, four flips a week and sell it all across a bar, they can probably pay themselves without much headache, 150 grand a year, which I think is a great, amazing retirement salary. Why does, <laughs> why is everybody mad at that idea? And 
I think there's a point where no matter what business you're in in America, but especially in, in beer, because we're always compared to these monster things where like, how hard was it for you to pivot on this thinking and the rest of the people you're responsible to, to be like, maybe the right answer for this project is this amount of beer, making this amount of money and everybody's got a good life. And nobody's freaking out and nobody's wasting money preparing for bigness. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great sort of point. And I think it's really important to note that, um, you know, we're on our way to our 17th year of being in business. And for the first, I don't know, first, at least 14 years, growth was nearly guaranteed, right? We, we entered the, the space at a time when everybody could circle five, 7%. You didn't have to be good at what you were doing and you could probably find it through territorial expansion, um, whatever, some tasting room business things. So I think it's really important to, to go back to growth is not guaranteed. And, you know, historically in a CPG kind of consumer packaged goods kind of environment, or even in the beer business, if you could find three to 5% a year compounding over 20 years, you would find significant volume over time. But we were all asked to invest in a shitload of capacity to grow quickly because that's what that's what was given to us, right? You can go get it at this time. The problem is, is growth is really expensive. You know, we now have a bunch of tanks that are bolted to the floor that are completely paid for that are worth 25 cents of what they used to be worth or what we paid for. That's expensive, right? right? That's a write down over five, 10 years that, that, you know, even with depreciation and things, you just aren't really, you may not have invested in the right place. Um, you know, we invested in it because it was quality of life. It was one shift. It was two shifts. It wasn't 24, seven, 365 overnight. Can't work yeah. with my family. You know, can't be a Christmas kind of stuff. Um, you know, for us growing down is trying to find the right, the right number against the right size. The brew house isn't too big. It's the other, it's the seller that's too big currently. Um, and, and if yeah, we I was going to find... say, you could, you could at with a yeah. 30 barrel tank, I'm sorry, with a 30 barrel house doing everything you wanted to do, which obviously it's been doing, you can go somewhere between five and 25,000 without really doing much more than just filling x amount yeah. of oh we could, we could we could get to 25 the challenge is, is yeah. that i would have twenty five thousand barrels of six beers and it'd all be the same and i don't have that right. ball. i don't have that velocity um you know it's not widely known yeah. but the guys at boulevard got to a hundred thousand barrels on a 30 barrel system so you know you can you can go <laughs> you can do it you can do it yeah i mean stone left this building at nearly nearly i think forty thousand barrels on the same size system this this brew house produced almost forty thousand barrels of beer but if you're asking me to produce this, the kinds of beers we want to make and do it in a small batch level and keep them fresh and keep them interesting, it's enormously challenging and crazy expensive the way the, the brewery is currently configured. Now, let's let's talk about that. So the thing is, I definitely see port in Jersey a lot, and I believe I've seen Lost Abbey in Jersey some. Does this... Does this being satisfied with this amount of distribution consolidate your reach in some way in your mind? Or is it, is it, will it, however much I've been seeing, assuming it does come here, I think it does, but you know, maybe like, all right, that's how much we do. That's it's selling through. We'll stick with this amount of reach. Or is there an idea to, to tighten that up a little as well? I mean, our current hope is that we have, we have the right amount of reach, which means that the places we are selling beer um, and there's a few places where we're a little smaller than, than we think. So those, those might not be the case, but, um, currently we are in Jersey. We're in Pennsylvania th through a couple wholesalers. Um, we used to have beer in, in Boston. That's not on, not on the table right now. And 
Chicago was a place and Seattle was a place. We don't sell beer to them currently. So the 8,000 barrels of beer that we're making, I would say probably north of 6,000, 6,500 is probably sold in California at this point. So our-, our Yeah, if you, li- if you listen to the, to the other podcast, Alex Kidd's Mall Couture, I'm pretty sure he might be buying all of it. Like he, yeah. he, drink, he drinks your beer every Friday. <laughs> he, he just moved to San Diego. So he's, he's, so he's now- To be closer back. to you? Oh, he's he's probably less than five to seven miles from us now. I haven't hooked up with him yet, but oh, God, yeah, he's you're he's trouble. he's pretty cool. by San Diego standards. He's very close, you know. Yeah, so <laughs> that's awesome. gonna be a lot. Of, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. So so talk about that, right? Because San Diego holds a holds a dear spot in my heart. Um, I don't know if there's just a good channel from San Diego to New York and New Jersey or whatever, but but a lot of the breweries I love and think of as West Coast breweries are San Diego breweries. When you broke this news, did, did guys call you and be like, how do I do this too? Cause I feel like there's a lot of people who went super big, super fast in that 2007 through 12 phase that, that probably would benefit from a similar decision or have they all just gotten out of the business entirely through sales? Uh, if you look at the San Diego part of it, I, I think it's, Someday, I think somebody's going to, you know, produce a movie about the San Diego brewing scene that that kind of goes into the, the wow part of it, because it's it's a really meteoric rise and fall. Um, you know, the largest breweries in town, which at, at a given time was Stone, uh, Ballast Point, Green Flash, um, you know, have all gone through and even Modern Times coming up, like have all gone through some very tumultuous, you know, I think business based decisions that put them in different precarious um, positions and even on the undercard, we just had McKellar kind of kind of come up and say we've got some stuff going on. Um, it hasn't been kind to be a big brewery in San Diego um, necessarily. There's still a lot of long-term legacy and things, but uh, getting too big in this town hasn't really been kind to a lot of people. So uh, I don't know if that's a function of, of uh, you know the density of breweries that are here now, or the pressure to be smaller and nimble, or that you know that beer farther from home doesn't play the way it used to. Uh, inflationary cost pressures to ship it, uh, distributor consolidation. I mean, you know, we never sent beer to New York State because I could never find a, a wholesale network where I thought a lot of our our brands could be, you know, could do well and, and be successful um, outside of the other San Diego things. So we've never been in New York State. We chose yeah. New Jersey over New York State because of the, proxi- the proximity uh, and and just the, the footprint that Hunter and you know kind of supplied us at that point. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's been tough to be a large brewery in San Diego, not to say that there shouldn't be large breweries in this town. Um, and they, they still exist, but, um, you can, you can look at the, the annals of history for the last 15 years and, you know, the bigger you get, the harder they fall. I mean, yeah. last five years even, right. I mean, for sure. yeah. I think this is the end anniver- we're recording this on the anniversary of the ballast sale. Um, oh, nice. is that true? I think that was seven years ago today that the wow. ballast sale happened. Yeah. That screwed up the whole market though. Yeah, like, like maybe, I, maybe it adjusts the market. I mean, maybe you're looking at it from the wrong angle. Maybe it adjusts the market. No, I have yeah. people telling me I'm a billionaire. Some people did pretty well based on that math. I mean, generational <laughs> wealth is pretty cool. I mean, yeah, no doubt. No, I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's good for them. <laughs> um, yeah. But I've got a lot of people telling me I'm a billionaire based on that valuation. I'm like, I don't think I could sell for a billion dollars, guys. I'm not, yeah. you know. Like, right. I think that I think that might have been a, a, a misprint once right. that sticks on the tape. 
I think um, I think the one thing I want to come back real quick on the San Diego scene yeah. that's important is you know Greg Cook at some point came out and talked about you know a lot of irrational exuberance and kind of the 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 the, the way that the the business behaved. And I think that everybody and their mother needs to kind of evaluate what what it means to be irrationally exuberant as an owner and how your decisions you made three years ago, five years ago, last week, this morning, um, really, really affect the future. And what does that portend as a company? Again, I think if you sit down every morning and you sit at your desk and you say growth is given, you're missing the point here, because I think we're we're not even sure at this point what the inflation kind of pressures look like next year. I mean, the elections have come through, which is at a minimum, at least going to kind of tell us what the pathways look like. Um, but, you know, the, the feds have done a lot of stuff in the last year that oh hasn't, my been God. Fa- hasn't been favorable to people uh, top to bottom, rich to poor. And, you know, all that stuff is so different than just, I have great beer, it'll sell. And I need a, I need another tasting room. Yeah. Good. Very good. point. so speaking of downsizing or resizing in San Diego, I believe I saw some, some check-ins recently from the family alpine i'm gonna say mcinary mcelhaney yep there you go mcelhaney are they back in the old room reopened on the old system making beer again like did you get did you guys hold hands and jump off this smaller pitch they did a (laughs) they did a nice job of securing the old space um when they were able to secure the old space they went out and got a new 20 barrels. Well, not a new, they got a 20 barrel system, I believe. Okay. And which is uh, much bigger than the old system. Right? The old one was like a five? 15, but closer to a 12. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, they're definitely, uh, you know, they, they've become the Phoenix from the ashes kind of thing. And it's exciting to see because the, the community really wanted to embrace what was, what, what, what was left behind. And um, they, they are a, they are an absolute success story. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I think it follows kind of what you're talking about, where, you know, they're a brewery I knew here in New Jersey in 2009, based solely on people talking about good hops at this spot an hour north of San Diego. Um, I think it's an hour. I might be wrong. But and then, of course, it's, they it's all, east, they, not north, but you're close. OK, but they did yeah. all those things to get to get out there, get everything Directions everywhere. on a compass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks buddy. Um, but you know, do all those things to get out everywhere and, and had that quickly suck their love of the life away from them. Right. Like, like you, they, you, you speak to them more than I do, but I was yeah. with them five years ago and they were not delighted by what was going on with their, their beer. They are, they are the poster children from rising from the ashes and, and hopefully yeah. not, not letting something get burned to the ground. I love Pat, Val, uh, Sean, and yeah, uh, and, and the entire uh, the entire family, and they are phenomenal at making beer. They just chose to kind of align with Green Flash at a time when Green Flash thought that growth was was everywhere, and they could take them to the moon because they were really great at their job. Also, want to shout out to Jamie. I apologize, I forgot her in that. Yeah. Um, they they can be a two thousand barrel a year brewery all day long and be super impactful across the entire United States by, by name, by vision, by recognition. And that's what they're going to, that's where they're going to live. And it's going to be great to see them, um, you know, own that, that little space and just crush it. So what we need to do, John, is get yeah. a San Diego local, like my old brewer, Ron or somebody on. Cause, cause this is, you know, Tommy's announcement and, and that are, are kind of both 
the first San Diego news I've cared about in 15 years, not to be, not to be the Jersey jerk that I am, but you know what I mean? It's every time I'm hearing stuff out of San Diego, I'm like, all right. So yeah, there's a, there's a little guy with a keg kettle and he's got people lining up at his door, but, but you know, I, I grew up with San Diego's leadership. So, so that's exciting too, right? So John, you haven't gotten asked any questions. Well, right? I have, I have, you're the real reporter. I have family, two, so. two things. Um, one for everybody who's listening right now, who's shouting that we haven't done the black glass. We're not doing the black glass on this episode. Oh, that's so just, I'm drinking tea. I'm sipping a tea like a gentleman. Uh, yeah. Tommy, um, what are you drinking? I saw you at a real beer when we sat down. No, uh, that's a version of our Mongo that we just released called Mosaic Mongo. So um, much like uh, all why the would cool you, kids. Why, why would you take such a great beer like Mongo and yes, ruin it and exactly. ruin it by because, throwing Mosaic in it? We've done John it for Hall. the tasting room in the past. Hey, um, Tommy, thanks for being here. We're out of time. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. It's great. I'm out of beer anyway, so it's Take fine. care. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, Paul, God, Paul, good, you good know luck with your brewery. you've come around on Mosaic. Yeah. Paul, you know you've come around on Mosaic. I haven't. You um, have. All right. So Augie obviously gave you his impression of, of uh, your news and um, you know, your announcements and everything. But I, I imagine that you've been hearing from a larger swath of the brewing industry. Um, and, and I'm curious what that reception has been like. Do, do you think that your announcement is poised to be the first of many in this? Or what what have people been saying to you now that they've had some time to digest what you put out into the world? So let me start. I really want to come back around. I, I give Brandon a lot of credit for giving us the space to communicate the message. Um, you know, it, it was it was a very great way to control the conversation and give people a place to go back to and make sure that the information was, um, you know, uh, you know, was defined and it didn't explain things. I mean, I just didn't want to live in a hearsay world. So that was really important, first and foremost. And I think we achieved the, the, the messaging that we wanted and, and given a platform and given a space um, for it to live, which was really good. You know, we wanted to be able to amplify the message and make sure that the people in the other outlets were able to you know, go back and get that and then ask the questions. Um, I had a bunch of people come out of the woodworks and say it was very courageous. I mean, I don't necessarily believe that telling the world you're, you're nearly failing is courageous, but at the same time, um, I think it's fucking courageous. I mean, you've won the innovator award. So this is just part of that. I'm innovating at, I'm innovating at bad economics, but um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people came out and said, thanks for saying something that we've been hearing. Thanks for putting, you know, a real spin on it. And, Ultimately, I think there's a lot of breweries. I mean, you know, Epic came out last week out of, out of Denver and said, you know, they're, they're going to retrench back to, to Utah and, and, you know, put their footprint. Um, I think there's a lot of breweries that are in the same space, you know, asking themselves, what's the question? And we've always said that more sales, you know, fixes everything, but more sales when things cost more doesn't fix everything. So um, coming out and saying being smaller is okay, I think was cool. Yeah. I, and, and I'm wondering if that's a message that's going to continue on into, because for so long, in the craft beer industry, when you'd go to conventions, when you'd go and hang out around brewers, it was always, you know, well, how many states are you going to be in? What's your growth plan? Like, there was always this, it wasn't even an undercurrent. I mean, it was a, a full-on wave hitting the shore of get big fast. Yeah. And that was sort of the encouragement here. And I'm wondering if this will help with a sea change. 
you know, we've got, I've been going to the craft brewers conferences since I don't know, 98 or whatever it is, but, and I love the messaging that started and, you know, craft beers at an all time high, David Edgar. And, you know, we've, we've been growing every year and that's, 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 that's where we were living, right? That was the, that was the kumbaya and that was the message and the, and the let's rah-rah, but we're not in a rah-rah moment. We're in a real moment. And the real moment is what are you doing to look at the, what are you doing to look at the inputs and how are you, you know, as a, as a 5,000 barrel a year brewery, you have no leverage. You can't control your input costs. You're basically just told this is what it is and suck it up buttercup. But um, that doesn't mean that you can be profitable and you have to kind of go back and say, is there profitability in, in the 16 ounce pack? Is there profitability in the six pack? You know, what does it mean to live there? Do I, do I have that? I mean, I, you know, Augie, you, you referenced, you know, the biggest hit we took in the last year, our barley, two row barley, you know, silo, silo grain went up almost 60% in yep. one year. And I, I couldn't fathom how we were going to be able to absorb that, you know, even though we'd taken price, but like, I, I'm glad it didn't go up again. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's what you just kind of were living. That's the space we're in. Um, well, I think the, so, so have, Tyler, have you thought what? about 19.2 ounce cans though? I yeah. That's like the that. future for duck duck. Yeah, anyway. I mean, it's, it's the future for all of it. Um, You're supposed to only do it in 20 proof or higher beers. There you go. Um, that's every every beer Kennedy keeps giving us in that monster can is 9% or better. Uh, but Tommy, let me ask you a question, because here's one of the things I'm running up against. Um, you know, I and this is probably my mistake, but since my lead brand is a 4-2 session beer, I've always tried to keep the margins pretty tight on it. Because, you know, no matter how much we evolve as a culture, people still largely buy alcohol, right? So yeah. when you're living at 4-2, you're anchored by the fact that there's always going to be 30 Coors Lights for $12. You know what I mean? So you can't push too far. So I've always kept the margins tight there. And exactly, I'm not going to beat up again how things have moved. But the, the restaurant that anchors the street I'm on, I'm on a small, you've been to the brewery, you know, but the, so the, the restaurant that anchors that street put up a thing a couple of weeks ago to try to drive business. I get it. Everybody's having a hard time these days getting people to come out of their house. Everybody got real used to sitting in their house. So these guys put up a Monday night burger special, which is a 250 pint of Miller Lite and a $9.50 cheeseburger. And what I'm having trouble wrapping my head around fathoming and talking to people about is one across the street at the pastry shop coffee is four bucks right what has me nervous is not that they can make a 200 $2.50 pint of Miller Lite it's that you shouldn't knowing what it takes to make beer a cheeseburger shouldn't cost four times that comfortably <laughs> do you know what I mean like like I know what it takes to make a cheeseburger I know what it takes to make beer how much of just alcohol is is shot in the foot by by the fact that we'll always be tethered by monster conglomerates that can keep you know like no matter what we're still selling beer and you know the 96 percent of the world that drinks industrial lager is saying why would you know you're never going to get in line with the right price right four dollar yeah. coffee doesn't bother anybody and four dollar boat that bothers does. me yeah I think back to when we first opened our doors and we kind of set an aggressive pathway for some of our barrel aged beers. And I kind of coined a phrase back then that, you know, beer apologizes and wine celebrates. 
Um, and so, you know, wine has a baseline and it, and it never deviates from that. And when it has a great vintage, they charge more. And I, I kind of used that as a, as a phrasing to kind of suggest that beer, beer will always be behind, behind it, whether it's the, 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 the not $200 bottle that I'm not on the list and not being paired with, or I'm not able to command the, the, the high dollars and sure it's tied to 30 ounce or 30, 30 packs and things. Um, you know, I, I used to say that, you know, you never heard of a boutique winery being referred to as a micro winery. You never heard them speak to what they you know, were or weren't. They were just a winery with, with really fancy beers or really exceptional experiences or low case totals. But, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, we're always going to be up against that. Now, at some point, I'm assuming your distributors have come to you, Augie, and said, Hey, wouldn't it be great if your session beer came in a 12 by 12 ounce uh, can? I make it. I make it. (laughs) <laughs> See, so, so you're already you're already in that mode, right? Yeah, you're already playing in the volume space, even though I you know. know you can't compete there. I I know, and I know it makes no sense, but but then you run into Tommy. Like I'd like to figure out a way to make it make sense, only because that's the way I drink, right? So sure. so what's funny is when when it was proposed to me that we do these twelve ounce twelve packs, I was the thing I like about it experience wise end user experience wise is when you buy a four pack of 16 ounce cans of boat at a store it's one of four or six four packs you're going to buy and therefore boat becomes one of the six beers you drink that night and i'm not saying it can't do that job but the beer was meant to be drunk 12 in a row and there's something about that 12 pack that forces that issue. And what I found really strange time, I never believed it would happen, but the guy talked me into it and I did it and it worked. Like I said, it, it drove a lot of sales for us. It grabbed a lot of counter for us, but it moved up. Like people started buying 16 ounce four packs of boat at a higher volume as well. And the only thing I can ascribe that to is people kind of re-registering, re-shifting 12 years later to, oh no, I do drink four of that beer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, and we were talking before about sharpening pencils on the cost of a gas for a 200 barrel tank versus a 30. That's what I'm trying to figure out is what's the right amount of that to do for that kind of, you know, for that kind of understanding of that brand. And, you know, what brands does it work for? Doesn't it work for? Does that make sense? For sure. But I mean, it, everything comes back to volume and velocity. And even at the volume that you're currently at, if you doubled your velocity, you'd still have almost no cost savings. Right. Absolutely so, true. Especially so, with the way the bills keep going. And even if yeah. I get ahead, the next bill is twice as much as it was a month before. I imagine yeah. that the big guys are just laughing at all of us like, ha look at those guys. <laughs> look at that format there. And we know that doesn't make sense to get to 100,000 units a month. And it's like, right. yeah, so, you know, I don't know. Exactly. Economics is not my, you know, I, I, I have an English degree, not an economics degree, but I do know that there's, there's a lot of decisions that we're making to participate in the space and try to tread some of the water um, that ultimately might be, might not be in our best interest. And, and the reality is, is that everybody's, Everybody who's listening is out there making these decisions, um, and very few people are currently winning. That's Tommy, true. You, you mentioned all the different breweries um, in the in the portfolio, and everybody's doing sort of a different um, a, a different aspect. But where do you see the importance of diversity in beverages? So not just beer, but I know you were dabbling in tea for yeah. a while. There's other folks who have gotten into you know you had your 
um, uh, what was the Mr. Bubbles? Tiny uh, Bubbles, I, yeah. Yeah, tiny, bubble. yep, tiny, tiny bubbles. bubbles. Uh -huh. Um, which was which was uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, what's the future like for that? I think it's interesting because every time I think that the world really wants alternative beverages from, oh, you know, from a range of producers, you kind of look back and you see that you know ultimately there's still settles into that ten to twenty different people on the shelf kind of stuff and. 18 of them come from, you know, big players or PE funds or venture capital things or, you know, like startups. And I mean, everything seems to kind of come back to volume um, for stuff to make sense. Like, I don't know if you could be a 4,000 barrel a year brewery and have a 500 barrel a year uh, hard tea brand that's going to resonate or hit the right shelves or create enough momentum. Like, I don't know where I don't know where everybody can live in that. Yes, we can all live in. I could have a I could have a kombucha. I could have a sangria. I could have a tea. I could have all kinds of of, of interesting sub brands. But I don't know outside of this really core level of consumerism where I'm going to find success with it on the shelf because now I'm going to be competing for price, for attention, for Insta posts, for anything that you know anything that makes it live and breathe. Uh, unless you have a big enough hospitality footprint and you can kind of go there. Um, even on an R&D level, we can, we can trial a lot of this stuff through our tasting rooms, but they really resonate with the people who come to our tasting rooms, right? They want a gluten-free experience. They can have that with the hard tea, but out in the trade, you know, is it price sensitivity? Is it flavor forward? Is it all natural? Is it gluten? Is it gluten-free gluten? You know, is it not gluten-free? You know, what does that, what does that look like? But um, the bigger the bigger the category component you're trying to be part of, the 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 more financial implications there are, and it's all tied to marketing and, and sales. Indeed, true facts, hundred percent facts, John Hall. That's what we're here for. That's that's um, the only reason I show up every every now, Monday at five. Now we've promised the thieves forty five minutes. So we promised Tommy forty five minutes. So we're at it. Um, I'm glad we got to run through this stuff. The last couple questions I had, Tom, is this. This in no way limits Port or all those others. They still intend to be kind of as big as they are doing what they do, pushing IPAs out yeah. of the world business, our, right? Like, our, our, our current hope is, and our current operational kind of you know, calendar basis is same amount of beer next year, just less footprint. Um, got it. Whether we can pull that off in a, in, a, in, a, in a move is going to be very challenging, but that's, you know, we've penciled the same amount of beer next year as this year. So it's not about, it's not about making less beer. It's about having less less footprint, having less overhead and really working to be, um, you know, a, a much smaller operation um, with regards to size and scale. Totally makes sense. I love all that. I, I love it. And I, I, I think the text I sent you was thanks for leading with sense. So I will say that out loud. Hall, do you have anything you want to clean up before I, before we say thank you and move on and say good at us? No. All right. I don't think we need to do this all the normal. This will be a totally normal Monday episode, I believe. But I just I wanted yes. to grab your ear, Tommy, and I don't want to waste your day. And I appreciate you coming on. And like I said, there, there's things even in this conversation that I'm going to go mull over with my tea. But we really appreciate you coming on. And again, sounds awesome. Sounds very feasible. Sounds very reasonable. And it's crazy to me that it sounds so crazy that it was what you did. You know what right. I mean? So. So thanks for talking us through it. Um, yeah. what, what do we need to say, Holly? You want to do the Brian Cast parts? Sure. Uh, go check us out on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and follow along at Steal This Beer. 
and hey, we need some letters. Uh, what are your thoughts on this episode? What What's happening in your beer world that uh, uh, you want to ask us about or ask our guests about coming up? So it's still this beer podcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you're in San Diego, uh, go visit Tommy, go visit all of the great brewers. And, you know, I, I can't I can't fully endorse drinking mosaic mango, but go get regular mango <laughs> and enjoy the hell out of it because it is. Uh, it's it's one of the best IPAs being made in America right now. However, for the 98% of people who drink IPAs and like Mosaic, maybe you could tell them it's okay? Uh, maybe. Um, oh, and let me give Tommy one more shout out because Tommy is back on the All About Beer Brewer to Brewer podcast uh, last week. I'm looking ahead to the future. So last week's episode where he interviews Steve Dressler from Sierra Nevada. About, oh wow uh, yeah see i know you weren't into it at first and now you're like uh, now you're gonna listen it's tommy you, and steve dressler talking about the beginnings of celebration of uh beers that didn't go well uh, and like you know beers that did go well it's like steve's 40-year career at sierra nevada it's a it's wow. a fascinating listen so it's on the all about beer podcast channel all right tom thanks for coming on you want to tell them anything before i say let's get at us you know, next next week is uh, Thanksgiving, so happy Festivus, merry merry holidays, and uh, you know all the all the good stuff that comes with it. But uh, Thanks, yeah, bro. friends friends and family, great beers. Cheers, guys. Thanks, bro. Right. Get at us.